a certain college student needed a small two-credit course to fill out his schedule. The only one that was available was wildlife zoology. He had some reservations. Uh, he had heard that the course was hard and that the professor rather different, but this was his only choice, so he signed up. After one week and one chapter, the professor passed out a test for the class. It was a sheet of paper divided into squares, and in each square was a carefully drawn picture of bird legs. Not bodies, not feet, just different bird legs. The test simply asked them to identify the birds by the pictures of their legs. The student was absolutely floored. He didn't have a clue. He sat and stared at the test and got madder and madder, finally reaching the boiling point. He stomped up to the front of the classroom and threw the test on a teacher's desk and exclaimed, this is the worst test I've ever seen, and this is the dumbest course I've ever had. The professor said, young man, you have just flunked this test. And as the teacher picked up the paper, he noticed that the student didn't sign his name. So the professor said, uh, young man, what is your name? So the young man, and I love this, pulled up his pants legs, revealed his legs, and said, you identify me. Oh, as the student's identity was a mystery, so is the identity of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Would you turn here, please? So much time and attention has been focused on who these witnesses are, but I believe there is a much better question that should be asked. How are these two witnesses energized to be great, great witnesses for Christ? I think that's a key question, and we'll focus on that today. Revelation chapter 11. This is another interlude before we have our seventh trumpet sound at the toward the end of this chapter. So let me read to you Revelation 11, 1 through 14. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. 
when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for the trek we have enjoyed together. Father, as we began this magnificent book, thinking about the first of the three parts and having the pleasure to understand the description of the resurrected and glorified Christ that so moved John that he fell down as dead. And then we thank you that we transitioned to those seven churches, literal churches in John's day. But now, as we had come to chapter 4, Father, we are so privileged to look into the future. And Revelation seven is the sa- or 11 is the same way. So would you bless this study, our time together today, for your glory I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. The writer of the revelation is now going to become the measurer of the temple. John is given a reed, the Greek word kalamas, a a plant with a hollow stalk. It uh, grew in the Jordan Valley. Catch this, 15 to 20 feet high. Notice here the command, rise and measure the temple of God. I want to point out that with this measuring comes the favor of God. He is pleased with his temple proper. This also tells us that there will be a future temple in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 alludes to this temple because the Antichrist will offer an abomination, a sacrifice that is displeasing to God in the middle of the tribulation. That's Daniel again, 9.27. Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 15 uh, spoke of the Antichrist desecrating the temple. And then we will study in the future from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, in conjunction with Revelation 13, about the Antichrist who will claim that he is God in that future temple. So there will be a temple that is built. And speaking of the word temple, this is not from the Greek term heron, which means the temple and all its precincts or buildings, if you will. 
This is the naas, which means the holy place and the holy of holies. And again, the measuring shows God's pleasure here. Not only is John to measure the temple, but the altar. This is probably the brazen altar uh, in the court outside the sanctuary. And those who worship there. Think about the worshipers, by the way. Where have they come from? Well, we call back in Revelation chapter 7 with the 144,000 supernaturally saved. And they go out and lead an innumerable multitude to Christ. Perhaps some of the worshipers come as a result of this witness. But now in verse 2, there's a transition and a contrast. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Now when you hear the words leave out, it sound, they sound sort of neutral. But they're not neutral. Uh, literally, it's ekbala, which means cast out. This term shows God's displeasure with the area that is being referred to. See, leave out, cast out the court which is outside the temple. And here's the reason why. For it has been given to the Gentiles. Now, we have to do a little bit of uh, searching here to kind of put this all together. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Book of Luke chapter 21. A key phrase is found in Luke 21, 24 that you need to be aware of. Luke chapter 21. And Jesus here is speaking. And he's talking about the decimation that will occur and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. See, the Gentiles, and notice the time frame, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. A little history lesson. You go back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is taken to Babylon in the second deportation, about 597. And there, Ezekiel describes the glory of God slowly leaving the temple and then the city. Why? Because in 586 B.C., the Babylonians would decimate Jerusalem, destroy the temple and that was the commencement of the times of the gentiles because israel had so defiled their god they were wrapped up with so many abominations god said enough you're not going to rule your own land so beginning in 586 bc was the start of the times of the Gentiles. That period will continue until Christ's second coming in Revelation chapter 19 when he puts down his enemies and then establishes his kingdom and gives the land back to his people as was promised and prophesied from the Old Testament. So this is key. Now notice here, Leave out the court which is outside the temple for it has been given to the Gentiles. Notice there's a time frame also given in our passage. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 
In the book of Revelation, you read about times, times, and half a time, three and a half years, or 42 months as here. Uh, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. I just want for a moment to take you to the period of time being described. Zechariah chapter 14, and we'll just take a look at the first two verses, although we'll come back, Lord willing, uh, to Zechariah 14 in the future. Zechariah 14, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, the day of the Lord parallel here to the tribulation period. 2 Peter 3.10 does extend the term to include the millennium, but for our purposes to focus upon the judgment that is being poured forth on the earth. So the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Verse 2, for I will gather all the nations, think you're all the Gentiles, to battle against whom? Jerusalem. The city shall be taken to houses rifled and the women ravished Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So, as you're coming back with me to Revelation chapter 11, we see that the Gentiles will have dominion for that second half of the tribulation, if you will, continuing from the period, the commencement of the times of the Gentiles in 586 BC. Now in verse 3 of Revelation 11, and I will give power to my two witnesses. Now we know that they're going to minister for three and a half years, but the question, will they minister during the first or the second half of the tribulation? Uh, Charles Ryrie believes it's the first half. He writes, it seems to this author that it refers to the first, since it is the coming of the beast onto the scene in power that terminates their witness. So Ryrie's position is that it's referring to the first three and a half years that these two witnesses minister, because when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, that's going to shut these two witnesses down. But I like to point out, I believe we're looking at the second half of the tribulation that these two minister, uh, these two uh, witnesses minister. Um, observe the verbs in 11.3. Key here. I will give... I will give power, and then they will prophesy. Both of the verbs are in the future tense. If you will, the writer is pointing to a future time, which seems to direct us to the second half of the tribulation. Then also John Walverd writes, and I, I concur, I agree with this, that the two witnesses pour out divine judgments upon the earth and need divine protection lest they be killed. It implies that they are in the latter half of the seven years when awful persecution will afflict the people of God as this protection would not be necessary in the first three and a half years. Mm -hmm. It does seem as we study our text that the two witnesses are given supernatural ability to protect themselves. It doesn't seem they would need that in the first half because of the covenant that the Antichrist had made with Israel. But they would need that protection. So based upon the tense of the verbs, future, 
and then thinking about that the divine protection that they would need, it seems to fit better with the second half of the tribulation. Continuing here, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. So, three and a half years again. Question, why two witnesses? Why two? Well, going back to the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6, you would need two witnesses to have someone put to death. It was the code of Israel. Then also in chapter 19 in verse 15, same book, Deuteronomy, when someone was in sin, you would need two witnesses to point out that this man is in sin and should be dealt with. So we have two witnesses, and now we have a further description that they are clothed in sackcloth. It's a symbol here of mourning. Now, let me draw your attention to, I think, a, a verse that is often overlooked in our text, but should be scrutinized carefully. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Fix those two thoughts in your mind. Olive trees and lampstands standing before the God of the earth. The terminology clearly takes us back to the book of Zechariah. So once again, let's go back to Zechariah. And this time we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. First of all, to Joshua the high priest, and then also to Zerubbabel, the governor. People have labored intensively to try to show who these two witnesses are, connecting them usually with Moses, Elijah, or Enoch. But may I say to you, I don't see where people take us back to Zechariah chapters 3 and 4 that pertain to the enablement that these two witnesses have. There's obviously a correlation here and some things that we need to think about. So you're with me? Zechariah is uh, prophesying to the nation. The temple, uh, half of it had been constructed and constructed, and had uh, been dormant, if you will. They haven't done anything for over a dozen years. So what does God do? He starts to stir the man of God to prophesy, to preach, to get things going again. So here in Zechariah 3, we meet Joshua. This is not the Old Testament character Joshua from the book named after him. This is the high priest, so he's representing the nation. See, God has to purge the priesthood because they would be the ones representing God. So here we have our fourth vision uh, given to Zechariah chapter 3. Let's just look at a handful of these verses. Pick it up, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing. Notice the posture. Standing. See, he's representing. Standing before the angel of the Lord. He's representing the people. And Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. So here we have the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, mentioned not only here in verse 1, but again in verse 2, Yahweh, uh, the eternal God. And Satan is there doing what he does best, accusing um, Joshua the high priest. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Israel, Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Had they not just been delivered from captivity? 
Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. The filthy garments showing the pollution of the priesthood. Verse 4, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, See, he's standing again. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Verse 5, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. So the cleansing of the priesthood. But now come over, if you will, to chapter four and we're going to bring these things all together. The fifth vision to Zechariah beginning in verse one of chapter four. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. The bowl is just hovering there supernaturally. See, the idea is that the oil is not going to come from a human source but a divine source. We're going to connect this with chapter 11 in just a moment. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. Now you're starting to see the connection with chapter 11 of Revelation. Two olive trees are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? See what was stated back in verses two and three. And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to whom? To Zerubbabel, see the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by spirit says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what we have before us, these two men, representing the high priesthood and the people, Joshua. And then Zerubbabel, speaking of the people, he's the governor. How are they going to be energized to do this great work that God has called them to do? To finish the temple, to cleanse the priesthood, to move the people back in the direction of worshiping the true God. This is all going to be done by the Spirit's enablement. And I ask you this question. What is it that energizes the two witnesses that we see over in Revelation chapter 11? And I would say the connection is given here. It's the Spirit of God. Because look at verse 7 here in Zechariah 4. Who are you, O great mountain? See the idea of an obstacle. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. See, God has no problem with obstacles. What seems that cannot be done by men can be done with God. And he shall bring forth the capstone. See, he's going to finish the process of the temple with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, as you're coming back to Revelation 11, I want you to think about this. What had God done? Well, back approximately 520 to 518 B.C., the temple needed to be completed. So God took two contemporaries, people that lived in that period of time, Joshua the high priest and there Zerubbabel, the governor. 
And they were the ones that got energized supernaturally by the Spirit of God in order to finish the task. Now we spring forward to Revelation chapter 11. And what so many have done, they said, oh, we got to go back to Moses. We got to go back to Elijah. We have to go back to Enoch. See, because Elijah and Enoch never died. And I thought, how sad. How would you like to be enjoying the glory of the Lord? And God said, you know what? I'm going to take you out of heaven. I'm going to put you back there down to earth. And I'm going to give you an earthly body only to be slaughtered. Now, these are two contemporaries to the period in which they minister in the same way that we had that with Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. I think that it has nothing to do with this passage with former prophets of God, but two men that God will raise up from that generation to do what needs to be done. Supernaturally energized by the spirit of the living God. And you have to step back and say, why are we not seeing more done in the church age? Perhaps it's because we are so program-driven that at times we forget that we are totally dependent upon the Spirit of the living God to accomplish great things. Remember, that's why Jesus said, I, I need to leave you to his disciples so he could go to the Father and pray for them. He would also send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So as Christ is at the right hand of the Father praying for us and as the Spirit of God is within us, that combination, that combination accomplishes great things when we depend upon the Spirit of God in Christ himself. Now back here in Revelation chapter 11. Now as you're coming down to verse 5, one of the reasons people identify the two witnesses with Moses and Elijah is because of their abilities. But I'd like to point out to you, both of these prophets these witnesses have the same ability. It's not just like one is like Moses and the things Moses had done and another is like Elijah and the things he had done. No, both of these men have this ability so that they can protect themselves. Verse five, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. See, it's not just fire like from Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. Remember the, the wicked king dispatches the first group of 50, the captain and the 50 men to arrest him. And he says, hey, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume him. Boom, they're gone. Same thing happened to the second group. And in the third group, the captain came, basically fell down before uh, Elisha and said, hey, uh, please don't do this, or Elijah, excuse me, and said, don't do this. But the fire came down. But both these individuals have this ability, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Not only that, verse 6, these have power to shut heaven. Both of them. You recall the story, 1 Kings 17. Elijah goes to the wicked Ahab and he says, for a season, a period of time, it's not going to rain because you're a wicked king and God is judging you. Uh, we learn from James 5 that the period is three and a half years. See, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they also have power over the waters to turn them to blood. You recall that from Exodus chapter 7 
when Moses and Aaron go down to the Nile, and there the Pharaoh is having devotions. Uh, they Egyptians, it says, worshipped the Nile. So the water is turned to blood. And notice to strike the earth with all plagues. See, as often as they desire. Now down to verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Uh, The beast, we'll study about him in Revelation 13. That is the Antichrist. Uh, The word here means basically a beast of prey. This is what he will do to these two witnesses once their witness is over. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. They're shaming these two witnesses. Burial was a right even given to criminals. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, even when someone was hanged on a tree for an offense, their body was taken down and then put in a grave. Psalm 79 also in verses 2 and 3 show that the way some shame others is by not giving them a burial. That is exactly what is transpiring here in Revelation chapter 11 in verse 8. Notice as well the metaphor. Jerusalem is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Uh, Two nations that dishonored God greatly, that were spiritually dull. Now this is the way Jerusalem has been also. And the thing that intrigues me as well here in verse 9. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see. And I ask you a question. When you go back to AD 95, uh, which cable station did John turn on? How was there worldwide coverage? And see the scripture, understanding the future and when these things would transpire. Speak of the time that the nations, and observe carefully the the wording here in 11.9, will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Why three and a half days? Well, these two witnesses seemingly tormented the people for how long? Three and a half years. Maybe for each year they were permitted one day to be out and shamed this way. Verse 10, and those on the earth, see the earth dwellers, the earth dwellers, the inhabitants of the earth, those that are firmly established on the earth and say this world is our home, those individuals that are opposed to Christ, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Amazing. Because remember what these two prophets had done? Calling fire down, various plagues on the people. So they are thrilled. They are elated when they are killed. And they celebrate together. Think about 11 and 12 as I read this to you. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. 
And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. It's reminiscent of our Lord. When he had finished his ministry, conquered death, did he not after dying on the cross? Ministering then to his disciples for 40 days, went to the Mount of Olives, and there he ascended, how? In a cloud to the right hand of God and subsequently sat down. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. This is verse 13. And a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. I want to point out to you that this glory is a temporary glory. The words God of heaven, God of heaven occur here and then also over in chapter 16. Flip a few pages and let's see it there. Revelation chapter 16, 10 and 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness. And, and by the way, I just want to take a moment and comment on the word darkness. The tribulation period itself twice is referred to in Amos 5, 18 and 20 as a time of darkness. The tribulation is a period of darkness. It's absent of God's light in so many ways. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul reminds the children of God at Thessalonica that we are sons of the light and sons of the day. We should not let darkness overtake us. My mind, as I contemplated that portion of Scripture, took me back to John 13. In verse 30, after Judas betrays the Lord, he walks out of that room and the writer graphically portrays it was night. Continuous action and past time for Judas because he had rejected Jesus. He permitted Satan to rule his life. For him, he would be in perpetual darkness. So here, his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Look at verse 11 now. No longer giving any glory to God. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. So the glory to God in chapter 11, if you will, is short-lived. And now to bring this to a close, come down to verse 14. The second woe is past. Remember? Chapter 8, verse 13. The angel flying through the sky, some translations say the eagle, but proclaiming, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Three woes, referring to the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments. Notice here what the writer picks up on in verse 14. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That will be the seventh trumpet judgment. We'll see that, Lord willing, next time, beginning in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. But remember, from the seventh trumpet, 
will come the seven bowl judgments. And from that seventh bowl judgment will be actually Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ to put down his enemies. So there's an anticipation, there's an excitement that is building throughout our text. So let's go back and think about our original question. Not who are these two witnesses. I don't think that's important. Uh, If it was important, they would have been identified. Scripture's no problem identifying people by name, whether past or even someone future, like Josiah or Cyrus. What we want to ask, how are these two witnesses energized to do what they were called to do? And here is our main point. Tap into God's Spirit for witnessing power. Yes, Tap into God's spirit for witnessing power. Remember the correlation? The two witnesses going back to Zechariah 3 and 4? And it brought us to the power of the Holy Spirit. See, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And this is so critical because even when Jesus is about to ascend to the right hand of God in Acts chapter 1, he says, you shall be witnesses, witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost part of the earth. But when? When they were baptized by the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God would come to indwell them permanently, there would be an enablement for witnessing. So all children of God are baptized by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we've all been baptized into one body. So we have the Spirit of God. But we have to think a little further about this because on a daily basis we are commanded to be filled with the spirit the baptism occurs once even when paul writes that to the corinthians he uses the past tense verb but yet in ephesians 5 do not be drunk with wine in which is excess but be filled present tense verb passive something externally has to fill you as we seek christ as we desire to be obedient to the entire word of God. The spirit of God fills or controls us just as individuals are controlled by alcohol and their actions reflect that control. You and I are to be filled with the spirit of God. And there are three evidences then that occur. Because in Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk with wine which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See, there's the joy. See, then in everything giving thanks, there's the thankfulness. And then in verse 21, being submissive to one another. So when we are spirit-filled, we have joy. See, the Spirit of God, that's the second fruit of the Spirit mentioned there in Galatians 5.22. We're joyful, not controlled by the circumstances. But then we're thankful. And number three, we are submissive. We get under God's authority and the authorities that God has established over us. That's how we can tell 
that we are filled with the Spirit of God. That's so very important for witnessing. Also, we need to make sure that we don't grieve the Spirit of God, which means to pain the Spirit of God. We are told in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Spirit? Paul continues there in verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So make sure that you haven't grieved the Spirit because you have bitterness in your heart. You've got to forgive people as Christ has forgiven you everything. So make sure you're filled with the Spirit. Be sure that you are not grieving the Spirit. And then finally, don't quench the Spirit, which is essentially saying no to the Spirit. The passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 19 is in the context of don't despise prophecy. So I think here when it says we don't quench the Spirit, we don't put out the Spirit's power by saying no to the Word of God. We cannot be individuals who pick and choose how we want to be obedient and to which passages. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and they are not burdensome. So dear child of God today, as we're thinking about these two witnesses, don't be consumed with who they are. If we were meant to know, we would be told their names, but rather probe the depths of how they accomplished what God had called them to do. Tap into God's spirit for witnessing power. Let's pray. Father, we've been challenged today from your word. We thank you for these two future witnesses that will also be energized by the Spirit. Bringing our minds back to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. But not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. So Father, today, help us to yield our lives to Christ that the Spirit of God could have full reign that as we have been baptized in the past, may we be spirit-filled daily. May we not quench and grieve the Spirit of God, but to be the witnesses we've been designed to be since we are daily walking with you. Do great things through our lives that we might be faithful witnesses by your Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.